Ladies and gentlemen, could I have your attention, please? My name's Andrew Hamilton. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University. And on this rather grey and dull October evening in Oxford, it's a pleasure for me to welcome all of you to this Oxford Martin School lecture series and, and a wonderful lecture that we will have brightening our day from uh, Larry Brilliant, who no doubt will tell us things that will also challenge us and be, uh, be most, most fascinating. It's a huge pleasure for me to be, as Vice-Chancellor, welcoming Larry and his wife. They were here on Saturday for the graduation of their son, and I had the honor of presiding at that graduation ceremony. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you, but I particularly want to call to the podium the director of the Oxford Martin School, Professor Ian Golden, who will introduce Dr. Brilliant. And Ian, as many of you know, has been the uh, director of the Martin School for the past five years. And prior to coming to Oxford in 2006, he was the vice president of the World Bank, and prior to that, the Director of Development Policy at the World Bank. And so, it's a pleasure, Ian, to invite you to the podium to introduce Dr. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor, and thank you for finding time in your incredibly busy schedule to be with us here today. It really is a delight to welcome all of you, and particularly uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant and his wife, Garidja, and, and our esteemed panelists who will join us and who I will introduce uh, when we get to that section of the program. Uh, Dr. Larry Brilliant has a most fortunate name uh, because it describes what he is, but not only what he is, who he is. Uh, he is a brilliant intellect, but more important, he is a brilliant mind and soul. He is the sort of person who cares and has this combination of caring and competence which is all too rare. And as we think of the challenges of the 21st century, and that is our job in the Oxford Martin School, we think about the looming stormy clouds and we think about how they are to be lifted. And when one thinks about that and thinks about the key issue, not least of pandemics, which is amongst the worst of these possible storms, and you think about the work that he's done in his past and what he's doing now, uh, one sees the light, and that is what is so exciting. The potential for great minds to come together in new ways and resolve the challenges of the 21st century. And I'm delighted that Larry's the first in our series of presentations and talks this term. We'll uh, present the rest of them to you later in conclusion, just to remind you of them, but they're on our website. And it's his optimism about what modernity can bring, as well as his deep and profound knowledge that the complexity and connectivity, which is both the solution, is also the source of the potential crises going forward. And how you put together this incredible openness and globalization to be a source of strength and not a source of vulnerability is absolutely key in ensuring that we're able to navigate the coming decades. Larry is currently president and CEO of the Skoll Global Threats Fund, which deals with five key issues, in addition to pandemics, climate change, water security, nuclear proliferation, and the Middle East. It's a most exciting new venture, which Jeff Skoll has supported, 
which is seeking to not only harvest academic and insight, but to move the politics as well. And I hope he tells us something about that, not least in the era of pandemics. Prior to joining Skoll, Larry was vice president of Google and executive director of Google.org, which is the philanthropic uh, arm of Google. He has worked in many, many capacities as a foot soldier in the provinces of India, in the corridors of power, advising the President of the United States and chairing the Biosecurity Task Force. And in all of these, he shows the same humility, insight, and fortunately, also sense of humor, which makes him such a wonderful friend. In addition to being a medical doctor and a professor of public health, he's been an advisor in many, many places. He was at the outset involved in the smallpox eradication in India, and he worked on that with David Heyman, who'll be joining us later. Worked on polio, on blindness, on disease surveillance, and on disaster. He founded something called the Siva Foundation, which has given sight to over three million blind people around the world. And, of course, he's been involved in trying to make us all understand about these issues. Most recently, as the senior technical advisor in the movie Contagion, he was able to make it not only dramatically Hollywood, but dramatically real. He's also uh, conceived the movie called The Final Inch, which was Oscar nominated, which is about polio eradication in India. His awards include the TED Prize, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, International Public Health Hero, and two honorary doctorates. He's written books, articles, and importantly, all based on this philosophical underpinning, which was his first degree. An ability to break down silos, to both understand the technical issues and what we need to do. Larry, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. We welcome you to the podium. Thank you. Ian, thank you very much uh, for that introduction. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Vice Chancellor, thank you very much. It's wonderful to see you again. And, um, for those of you who uh, take Oxford for granted, I have to tell you as a newbie to an Oxford graduation ceremony, uh, I found it thrilling. Um, it, it, uh, hearing it in this room in Latin, it felt like an unbroken chain all the way back to Roman times. It was. It was really something. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you, and thank you to the Oxford Martin School. So I was told uh, to give a talk uh, for a general audience introducing the idea of pandemics. I, I have three points that I'm going to make. One, ceteris paribus. I've done my Latin. All other things being equal, if we do nothing else, there will be more pandemics we bear the risk of entering into an age of pandemics. More and worse diseases emerging from animal zoonotic diseases. The causes of that I will go through, but they are fundamentally the causes of modernity. That's point number one, if we do nothing else. Point number two is there's so much to do. New vaccines, antivirals, point of care diagnostics, new regional systems of governance, and most of all, better, faster ways to detect the first pandemic, the one that jumps from a monkey to a human, that comes out of a forest. Indeed, the hypothesis is 
if we can find every new virus as it jumps species to humans, we have the chance to consider eliminating pandemics in our lifetime. Oh, it's a terribly ambitious thing to say. It sounds preposterous. But then so did the eradication of smallpox, the eradication of polio. So the third of my points is that I think the first two are competing lines in opposite directions. And the third is that you have a choice. We all have a choice. How much are we going to prioritize what modernity can do to solve a problem caused fundamentally by modernity? So I'm going to show some snippets from the movie Contagion. I'm going to talk to some of them, but because of that movie, I'm going to be able to let Kate Winslet do some of my talking, Matt Damon do some of my talking, um, and we'll see if that can't make it a little bit more entertaining, because otherwise this would not be a lecture that would brighten up the day. I should just tell you about the School Global Threats Fund. Uh, Ian told you a bit about it. I'll end uh, with a little talk about it. But in the Q&A, I hope you'll ask questions about uh, nuclear proliferation and climate change and some of the other things and, and ask what kind of crazy person would put all five of those into a single foundation when a hundred foundations alone could be devoted to any one of them. I, I hope we'll have that question. Um, one of our sister companies is uh, Participant Media, which along with Warner Brothers made this movie. Uh, it was written by a wonderful um, screenwriter, Scott C. Burn, Burn, Burns, and directed by Steven Soderbergh. My colleague Mark Smolinski and I acted as uh, senior technical advisors to get the science right. In fact, we um, interviewed 200 of the top scientists in the country to try to get the science right. And I hope that you will find some of these snippets to illustrate some of the points that we're dealing with today. Is anyone even working here? Just get the cereal. <coughs> Jory, don't touch anything. Help me. Hey, take your gloves off. Here, give me your hands. You really rub this in. I chose this uh, scene because it has a Mad Max post-apocalyptic vision, which is what many of us fear would be, in fact, the case of a classic pandemic. Not a pandemic like H1N1, which we all suffered through a few years ago. H1N1 was a, a, a trial pandemic. It was like having the extra wheels on your bicycle to learn how to deal with a pandemic. Because we were really lucky because the roll of the dice that could have made it not only one of the most transmissible viruses in history did not also make it one of the most lethal viruses in history. But we were lucky. It could have gone the other way. It should have gone the other way. Most of us thought that it would go the other way. We made the movie to show you what a real pandemic would look like instead of one that had so much hype and then left you with a vague sense of disappointment that the pandemic wasn't bad enough, which in fact was what most of the media said. 
But some of the smartest scientists in the world think that it's inevitable. I'm taking the liberty of quoting a Cambridge uh, scientist. I hope that's not a, uh, a problem uh, here. Um, but Lord Martin Rees, uh, who has until recently had three of the best titles in the English language. He was the head of the Royal Society. He was the master of Trinity College. And he was the Queen's astronomer. Martin made a bet on one of the long betting uh, online systems. And his bet was that by 2020, there would be a single event that would kill at least a million people. And if you talk to him, he'll say, I would have made that bet 100 million, but then I didn't think anybody would take the other side of the bet. So why is that? Why do so many scientists feel that we are on the verge of pandemics if we do nothing other than what we are doing? Well, because there are increases in human population. Because human settlements now push into animals' habitat. Because last year, Africans alone consumed just shy of a billion wild animals. And I know that when we talk about epidemiology and people think about sexually transmitted diseases, they think that's the most intimate way that humans can exchange viruses. But I assure you, the most intimate way that you can exchange viruses is to eat another animal. In, in China, in Laos, in Cambodia, where economic development has allowed people to buy more protein, to eat more animals, we have the closest and most intimate relationship that the most number of people have ever had in the history of humanity. With increases speed of travel, we're able to take a virus from an arboreal rainforest all over the world faster than we could imagine. In 1917, the Spanish influenza traveled around the world four times in a year. Imagine what that virus could do now. Well, how do we answer that challenge? We answer it first with the gating issue, which is find the new pandemic potential viruses. That's the gating issue. Of course, vaccines are the most important thing that we could have if we have them in our armament, antivirals. But if we don't find the virus, if we don't know where to apply our interventions, if we don't know where to send our rapid response teams and to have our point of care diagnostics and our genomic epidemiology, then all of that goes to waste. Surveillance, rapid response containment. David Heyman's familiar with this cadence. This is what we did in smallpox eradication. And it's important that we find the right places to apply this speed of detection and response and containment. We know that there are hot spots that are more likely to be the source of H5N1, H1N1, SARS. We know that Southeast Asia is a more likely place from which respiratory diseases will come. South Asia is more likely to be a source for waterborne diseases, Africa for bloodborne diseases. These are not hard and fast rules. We're talking generalities. But David is involved in an organization called CORDS, which we are involved in also, which is trying to reestablish regional governance between government-to-government -government health departments in areas that are most likely to be the places from which new viruses will occur. So it's very important that we establish not only rings of immunity around a virus, but we establish rings of governance around a new virus. And where will those viruses come from? 
Where will be their ultimate origin? <clears throat> it could be deforestation, not beyond trees. Bats being released from their ancestral homes. Moving into human habitations. Living in a barn. Sharing an apple with saliva, with a domestic animal, being cooked for supper. Sharing blood with the chef. And then with Gwyneth Paltrow, who's going to get on a plane and go to Chicago in a minute. So, if we think of this entire hermetically sealed system, when we talk about a pandemic, we're talking about an epidemic which occurs in more than expected frequency in five continents, spreading some big number of diseases. Let's look at one disease that we know very well, because we know it almost from beginning to end. Let's look at smallpox, because we know, we don't know where it really began, but we know that as long as 3,000 years ago, smallpox was very common. We know that one Egyptian pharaoh, Pharaoh Ramses V, had smallpox, died of smallpox. We know that even when Larry Page and Sergey Brin, my former colleagues at Google, when they were born, there were two million deaths a year from smallpox. We know that smallpox killed over half a billion people in the last century. That's not a wordo, that's 500 million people were killed in the 20th century by smallpox. And, and more importantly, as a moral lesson, we know that it's the 1% is not safe from a new disease for which there's no antiviral or no vaccine. This is one of my favorite slides in public health. It's not my favorite slide because I like the idea of sovereigns being killed. I want to be clear about that. It's my favorite slide because anyone who looks at this has to come to the conclusion that we're all in this together. That a new pandemic for which there's no cure that we're just hearing about, we're all at risk not just the 47%. Let me tell you a little bit about what smallpox looks like, but let's use as our vantage point, not a doctor, let's look at it from the perspective of a mother watching her child develop smallpox. And I warn you in advance that many of these pictures are hard to look at. So here's a, a young boy born in Pakistan. His brother had smallpox. There was a CDC epidemiologist there. We'll call him Muhammad Ali for now. And the epidemiologist had a camera, and he photographed him every day of the disease. So you can see what that disease looked like to his mother. Day one, day two, day six, already you can begin to see the pathognomonic, the characteristic lesions of smallpox. Day nine, day 13. By day 13, you can see, as an epidemiologist, this boy will live. He'll be scarred for life, 
but he's one of the lucky ones because as many as 35% of children who got smallpox died. And by day 20, he's out of the woods. And, and just a little bit about smallpox, it's person-to-person -person spread, it's respiratory, has an incubation period of seven to 17 days. About 70% of you would be getting smallpox if I was here talking very loud and broadcasting my respiratory spread voice. It can be prevented by vaccinations, by cowpox, by previous exposure to smallpox. And unusually in vaccination, vaccination after you've got the disease within four days can interdict it. And, and here's the question about vaccines. Vaccines are the most wonderful thing we could possibly have in public health. Bill Gates' life work has been to flip two ratios. 20 years ago, only 20% of kids under five were vaccinated against the major killers and cripplers. Today, 80% of kids worldwide are vaccinated. When he goes to heaven at the end of his life, he's got a really good get-out-of-jail-free card. But it, we had a vaccine against smallpox for over 200 years, and we didn't eradicate smallpox. We had a vaccine against polio for over 70 years, and we haven't yet eradicated polio although I am ever optimistic. In fact, here's a really good slide to give you an idea of what happened with smallpox, beginning with 1967 when Professor Vladimir Zhdanov from the Soviet Union came to the World Health Assembly and challenged the entire world of nations for us to work together on the same team fighting against a common enemy. And you can see that spike. Now, that's when I joined the smallpox eradication program. Now, that's when David Heyman joined the smallpox eradication program. Now you may wonder, what did David do to create that spike? I mean, he's a nice enough guy. What did you do to start that spike? Well, what he did, and 150,000 other people, is they went door to door to every house in India looking for every single case of smallpox, because to eradicate it, we had to find every case in the world at the same time. And when David went door to door, with all of his colleagues trying to find every case of smallpox, they found a higher percentage of cases than anyone had ever found before. So that is not really a spike of an epidemic of cases. That is a spike of an epidemic of reports. And that's the whole thesis of why early detection is so important. You have to find the right disease in the right place by the right method for the right reason, or else you wind up with aberrations in your data. And how did we eradicate smallpox? Well, this is the other lesson for how we can try to challenge ourselves to go after pandemics. Everybody had been doing mass vaccination, but if there's an outbreak of smallpox in Oxford, it does not help if we vaccinate in Tokyo. It just doesn't. You have to vaccinate where the cases are. But that, that is now so clear. But it wasn't so clear in 1968, when a young medical officer who was working with his church in Nigeria, in the middle of the Nigerian Civil War, found himself confronting an epidemic of smallpox. And Bill Fagey did not have enough vaccine for everyone in the village. And he asked himself, as a Lutheran, as a Christian, as a moral person, what do you do when you don't have enough vaccine and you can't do what was then the received wisdom, vaccinate everybody? And he said, the moral thing to do is to give the vaccine to those who need it the most, by which he meant those who were closest to another case of smallpox 
or who had come in contact with them. And that led to this idea of active disease surveillance followed by what is now called ring vaccination or containment vaccination. Now, this is an idea that is as powerful as anything you can do in the lab because it led to all of us going around carrying that card of a picture of Muhammad Ali and asking villagers had they seen a case of smallpox like that. And I'm pleased to tell you that's my wife over there. She hasn't changed a bit. And this is what we did for social media at the time. There was, no small, there was no Facebook. There was no Google. But we put these everywhere, trying to tell people, if you see someone who looks like that, report them to us, because we want to find them. We put our signs on the backs of rickshaws in the middle of theaters. More importantly, David and his 150,000 best friends wrote on every single house in India. When was the last time a search worker was there, a vaccinator was there? That was our scorecard, written in something called Wet Geru on the side of every house in India. I want you to understand the scale, the obsessiveness, the analness that you had to do to find every case of smallpox in the world, because that's what we're going to have to do to rid the world of pandemics. And then the reward is this. The last case of varial major occurring in nature, Rahima Banu, whose disease took place in Bola Island in Bangladesh, and a cert cert certificate of disease eradication signed by all the health ministers, members of the World Health Assembly. Please remember, it took a village. It took all of us. It took people who were white and brown and black, all religions, all nations, working together against a common cause. And it particularly took the people whose names we don't remember. Not the big shots, not the ones with computers, not in Oxford talking to everybody, but the ones working on the field, risking their life for an abstract idea of how to eradicate the disease. And now we're close with polio. I won't spend much time on it, except my heart is in it, David's heart is in it. We are very close to eradicating polio. It is actually left in only three endemic countries. Unfortunately, one of those countries is Pakistan and another is Afghanistan. But India went 12 months without having a single case of polio. I want you just to understand some of the problems that we are up against so that when we talk about eliminating pandemics, we remember the ground game, remember the foot soldiers. Tremendous pride.
So let's talk a little bit about generic epidemics. This slide shows the last, from 1996 to 2008, how quickly the median pandemic potential disease in the world was detected. This is work of John Brownstein from Harvard. And in 1996, it took 167 days. If it takes 167 days to find an outbreak, by the time you get there, that outbreak could be all over the world. But by the year 2008, we were down to 23 days. Now, there's a lot of information here. I don't want to make it sound so simple. But some of the reason that we are finding diseases more quickly is because of digital disease surveillance systems. And it's very important that we find every case, whether digitally or by working in the field, because of the incubation period, which is how long it takes for one person to get the disease from another, and because of the reproduction rate, known as r naught. Now, a lot of people have trouble with r naught, uh, so I decided to ask Kate Winslet just to explain it to you. When will we know what this is? What causes it? What cures it? Things that keep people calm. What we need to determine is this. For every person who gets sick, how many other people are they likely to infect? So for seasonal flu, that's usually about one. Smallpox, on the other hand, it's over three. Now, before we had a vaccine, polio spread at a rate between four and six. Now, we call that number the R-naught. R stands for the reproductive rate of the virus. Any ideas what that might be for this? How fast it multiplies depends on a variety of factors. The incubation period, how long a person is contagious. Sometimes people can be contagious without even having symptoms. We need to know that too. And we need to know how big the population of people susceptible to the virus might be. So far, that appears to be everyone with hands, a mouth, and a nose. So I've just shown you that in the last two decades, we've seen worldwide that the average detection of outbreaks has been speeding up very quickly. We, we have some innovations that I'll be talking to you about that are part of the reason for this, but they are not the entire reason for this. One of the biggest reasons is that health systems around the world have gotten better and routine reporting has gotten better. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what we did at Google and why we did it and what that's led to. These are informal sources of disease reporting. The most important thing to say is that until the change in the international sanitary regulations in 2006, David, is that right? WHO was not allowed to take cognizance of an epidemic anywhere in the world, unless it came from the health minister of a country. Now, WHO is required to take action when any one of these informal systems report a new epidemic. It's a tremendous sea change. That one political change has opened up the floodgates. And now we can see internet searches, health scrubbers, self-reporting, social networks. In fact, these are all organizations which did not exist 10 years ago. And they are there trying to look at all the news media, uh, capture keystrokes, uh, exchange SMSs, use your cell phone to help identify new potential pandemic diseases. 
And HealthMap, which is one of the organizations, displays that information on an hourly basis. You can take a look at the map. It's free. It's online. You can see any disease that you're interested in. The, the work that we did at Google was based on three young engineers who knew of my interest in, in speeding up disease detection. And they came to me and they said, why don't we look at every single search term that's ever been entered into Google in its entire history and do three or 400,000 simultaneous multiple regressions and figure out exactly what 50 terms will explain the entire variability in influenza reporting? And I said, sure. <laughs> You'd say sure. <laughs> and in fact, they did. And we took CDC, the Center for Disease Control's five-year truth data, trained the system on that data, and they, in fact, put together an algorithm that beat CDC's reporting by two weeks. And Phil Campbell, who's the editor of Nature Magazine, when we sent that to him, he put together a great peer review panel for that, and he said, um, they reported back, they said, this is a really good experiment. Would you please find another lab that has 10 million computers and has 50,000 trillion bits of data in which we can verify your report? <laughs> Fortunately, he, he was willing to accept that that might not be possible. But we ran that for one year before we announced it to the public because we were afraid if we were wrong and we gave bad information, it would alter people's behavior about taking the vaccine. So here's how it works. Uh, you can see ILI means influenza-like illness. That's CDC's reports in yellow. That's what Google Flu Trends shows in blue. Those are actually all happening at the same time. That's one point in time when uh, Google seems to suggest that there's more flu than CDC does. And now watch how CDC's reports are changed the week later as additional laboratory confirmation comes in. What's really interesting is that we use Google to be a surrogate for truth data that came from the health agency, and then a drugstore firm called Walgreens used its prescription data, and it used as truth data Google's data. It's, it's a whole new world with all these new systems. That's why I started by saying modernity might have been the cause of increased pandemic risk. Modernity can be the solution for increased risk. Next week, we are announcing a new surveillance system. It's called Flu Near You in the United States. We're announcing it at the American Public Health Association. It will be based on getting a SMS text message once a week. Volunteers will be asked if they'll receive it, and they're willing to say if they're sick or not. That's it. Based on that, we think we can beat CDC's reports of influenza by two weeks. And with each successive increase in technology innovation, I hope we can continue to do that. But it's not just CDC. It's not just Google. It's not just flu near you. The world is erupting in new and innovative ways to find every new pathogen as and when it emerges. And so that's where we are right now. And to summarize, if we do nothing, we are likely headed to a world that is an age of pandemics. And pandemics are really terrible. When we talk about a pandemic, we're not just talking about tens of millions of people dying. We're talking about no airplanes in the sky for six months, no supply chain. There'll be nobody going to work at Google's 
call centers or yahoos. There'll be no internet. The apocalyptic vision that I gave you in the beginning will come true. But it doesn't have to happen that way because we have new tools that we can apply to fight against that occurrence. And digital disease surveillance is one. New self-reporting systems are another. Better vaccines, point-of-care diagnostics, better government organizations, increased general public health services. And as you think about this, and you think about these two paths that stand before us, just ask yourself, which of them is the highest and the best path that we can follow? And remember that in dealing with pandemics, as in dealing with so many other things, we are really all in this together. Thank you very much. That was brilliant, as I anticipated, and uh, both a source of enlightenment but also inspiration as the potential to deal with these problems.